This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 250 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week for this wonderful show that is now a quarter of the way to a thousand episodes, it's Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? It's going great. 250 is a nice number to look at right now because it means that, you know, we've done a lot of shows. Of course, not just the two of us, but Chris Jones and Matt Rushing before us. But that's a lot of episodes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, you know, it's, it's one of those nice round numbers that's just always kind of a neat little milestone. Not as big as, you know, a multiple of 100. But, you know, I remember the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. That was a pretty big deal. This is kind of kind of along those same lines. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody's just as excited as they were for the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. As they I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, William Shatner is going to do a TV special. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. I can't wait. I've been waiting for William Shatner to show up on the show. So, Well, we did all of his novels and that wasn't enough, enough to get him to come calling, but uh, I don't know what else we could do, really. <laughs> Maybe we didn't praise the, uh, the novels enough. Maybe we just right. didn't overdo it. We'll have to redo all those episodes then, I guess. These novels are the best I've ever read. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, in today's show, in the feature, we're going to be talking about the novel A Time to Heal by David Mack. And we actually have the author in to talk about that as well. So that's really exciting. That'll be really cool to have, have him on the show again. What? He's on the show? All right. He is, yeah. He doesn't just hang out in the green green room like Dayton does, but, you know, he's at a coffee shop down the street. We just go in there and grab him and say, hey, we're doing another show. Come on in. And, and he's always game. Oh, that's interesting. So you're implying he has nothing else better to do. Well, no, he's working very di diligently in that coffee shop on his next novel, of course. Okay, but, good. Uh, well, I want to find out more about that from him. <laughs> definitely. Well, we'll for sure talk about that. Uh, but first, we don't really have a lot of news this week. Uh, actually, not really any at all. So uh, one thing we did say, though, a couple episodes ago in episode number 248, when we talked about 
uh, Deep Space Nine Millennium Book 3 Inferno, uh, we said one thing that we want to do is get a little bit more listener feedback on the show through the Babel Conference comments. And uh, because of when we record the show, those are always going to be displaced by two weeks because uh, by the time that episode comes out, we are all, have already recorded another episode and are working on the one after that. So uh, basically every two weeks, we're going to talk about the episode from two weeks before that. This is this is as complicated as one of those time paradoxes from that novel, but uh, b- bear with us. We'll, we're going to respond to some comments that we got on the Babel Conference about uh, episode 248, which is, it all makes sense, I think. That's the actual name of the title. <laughs> yeah. It's not going, and, I think. It's part, that's the title. <laughs> and that explanation of mine makes sense, yes. I think. I, I think you're right. Yes. And it's funny because anybody who's listening right now, you guys who are listening at this very moment, your future to us right now, we're past. Whoa. You just blew my mind. So wait, if we beam over to the station from this ship, we're two episodes ahead. But if we beam over from the other ship, we're two episodes behind. Is that? No. I don't know, Dan. You're talking like you did in episode 248. That was also used for a previously on Trek FM segment. So people have hmm. heard you probably mention this a couple times now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that uh, some of our listeners were just as confused about that book as we were. Uh, first of all, we've, we've got a comment by Justin Ozer, friend of the show, who's been on several times and one of our wonderful associate producers. He said, it was very interesting to hear this episode. It's been a little while since I read the trilogy and I do remember a lot going on, but somehow at the time I didn't feel confused by anything by the end. I wish I could remember how I made sense of it at the time though. I do remember the scene with Vic being very moving as well. It doesn't affect the plot as a whole, but I'm glad they included it as I love Vic as a character. Yeah. And I think that's how we felt too. You know, Vic is such a great character and he didn't have a big integral part in the plot of the book but he definitely was a fun character to have in there just so we could visit with him but again still confused us on some things like how could Vic be on the station outside of the hollow suite hmm Mm -hmm. and they never did answer that did they really I mean I don't know we have some theories but I'm still confused by that (laughs) and those of you who haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled then just ignore what I just said Right. Yes. (laughs) Retroactive spoiler alert. That works when you're talking about time paradoxes, you see. (laughs) Oh, well, we have a next one here, too. I'm just looking through some of them. Uh, Jay Gillespie says, probably the best Trek books. I can always come back to them and never get bored. Yes, Jay. I agree with you because I feel like I could go back to these and I'll probably pick up things I missed or things that will be more clear to me now like i really feel like i could reread these books yeah i as you guys probably know from listening to those episodes this was the first time i had ever read them but i can certainly see that i feel like these would be fun to revisit after a couple years and kind of get some new perspectives on it there's so much in those books that i feel like there's a lot that i missed going through them the first time so probably pick out a lot more the second read through And uh, yeah, I feel like they'd be a lot of fun to revisit for sure. Well, we have another comment here from Chris Hill, uh, quoting one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who of all time. 
describing this novel, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. And yeah, that sums up these books perfectly. That sentence, you know, it started out well and kind of lost it towards the end. And it's a little bit how I feel about those books. Just a little bit. Although I still really like how they all wrapped up. There is kind of this big wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing that you kind of just have to accept, I guess. I would almost like someone to write fan fiction of Doctor Who visiting some part of this these books. Like all the events mm. that are going on in these books, that Doctor Who's there somewhere through these events. We just didn't see him in the books, but he's there. I could see that. This is the kind of thing that he'd uh he or she would get involved in for sure, because it's it's all wibbly wobbly and timey wimey and very weird. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, Jen Foley has some interesting things to say, too, about this book. She says, I finished listening, and here are my thoughts. There were some great scenes in the book, some of which you mentioned. Garrick with his self from the past, Kira pretending to be herself in the past, the personal hells of various characters, Jake on the Defiant, etc. Though I agree that Arla Rees was an interesting character, I felt that I had predicted what would happen to her from the beginning. She's such a staunch non-believer that she has an experience where she's stuck in hell and can't be saved because she didn't believe in the prophets while she was alive. So when she comes out of that experience, she becomes a believer. Meh. I was even more confused by this book than you two were. At the end, I realized I still didn't understand how the station was still intact when we'd seen it destroyed, how the universe was saved, or what exactly happened among the various wormhole aliens in the war. The earlier books made it clear that Pryler Obanek and his people worshipped the aliens in the Red Wormhole, whom they believed were the true prophets. Yet by the end of the book, Obanek's people are made out to be the good guys. So are the Red Wormhole aliens really the true prophets? Does this also mean the Red Wormhole aliens aren't really evil? And what does it mean for Sisko, who believes he's the emissary to the Blue Wormhole aliens? And where do the paw wraiths from the fire caves fit in? There was some explanation that Obanek and these paw wraiths were thrown out of the red wormhole, but it's never explained why, because of all the confusion, this was my least favorite of the three books. However, I still enjoyed it, and the trilogy as a whole is great. Well, thank you, Jen. I think... Uh, that pretty much sums up how I feel about things too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of there with both of you. Um, the one thing I would say, uh, the books earlier books made it clear that Pryler Obanek and his people worshipped the aliens and the red wormhole whom they believed were the true prophets. I feel like they didn't really, like he didn't really believe that. I think we find out at the end that he's, filling a role in the prophecy to move it forward and that he's not really aligned with them. I might be totally misremembering that and getting that completely wrong, but that's kind of what I was left with at the end. But, uh, or maybe that was the other Prylar I'm thinking of now. Now I'm really confused, but, but yeah, this is, um, this is exactly how I felt. I was kind of confused and, you know, some stuff made sense that it was all wrapped up and then other stuff. Yeah. Wait, how did that happen? Why is the wormhole intact? What happened there? Uh, kind of with you on that. Yeah. It seems as if you want to get answers and you start thinking through things, you just create more questions. It gets more confusing sometimes. Yeah. And, and 
that's the thing. Yeah. I, I do remember sitting down to do that episode and being really nervous because I wasn't sure that I had a grasp on, on how the book went. And, uh, it's really amazing that Bruce and I were actually able to make it through that episode because I was worried that it would just be completely off the rails and unintelligible. And it was only mostly unintelligible. So we had that going for us. It's just amazing that I can get through any episode. <laughs> so <laughs> that was not a big deal to me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, and Jen also shows a picture of her Enterprise pizza cutter. And she also wishes she could have a Discovery one like we do. Yeah. Um, I have a few friends. And I, th- I think, Bruce, you have that pizza cutter as yes, well. Yes, I do. Yes. I still have it in the packaging. I haven't opened it yet. Nice. I, I don't have it myself. I have a couple friends that have it, but uh, yeah, that's one that I don't have in my collection yet. <laughs> I'm just afraid if I use the pizza cutter that the hull's going to spin and then it's going to go into some spore drive and just take off somewhere. Oh no. Yeah. I can see how that would be a concern for you sure. see my concerns? <laughs> I have lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you guys all so much for your comments. We really appreciate that. It's a lot of fun to kind of be able to respond and and have a little back and forth here. So thank you guys so much. But yeah, let's do that. Let's jump over to the feature and welcome David Mack aboard. Hey, David, come on in here now. Well, as I mentioned earlier in our feature today, we're talking about the novel A Time to Heal by author David Mack. And joining us to talk about it is the author himself. David, welcome back to Literary Treks. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Awesome. We're always happy to have you aboard. So thank you so much. So uh, just before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how long ago this novel was written. And so it was about uh, 15 years ago now. Is that right? About that. Yeah. I was contracted to write it in the spring and summer of 2003. Started working on the manuscript for Time to Kill around this time in 2003. And A Time to Heal... I was working on the manuscript for that in the first few months of 2004. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit today, mostly about A Time to Heal, uh, but we're going to bring up some of the stuff from A Time to Kill as well. And these, I want to say, are books seven and eight of the A Time to series. So uh, first of all, what was that experience like working on such a huge collaborative uh, nine book series like this? It was an intimidating way to start one's career in writing tie-in novels. Previously, I had written e-books of novella length or short novel length and some support material for other Star Trek books. But these two novels, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, were my first forays into full-length paperback novels. And I was contracted to write two of them back-to-back in very short turnaround. and part of the reason it happened was that somebody else who had originally been hired to write book seven and eight of this nine book series dropped out at the last minute unexpectedly. And I was approached by my friend and uh, at that time, Star Trek books editor, John Ordover. And he said, I've got these like two book deal available. Do you want it? Not being a fool. I said, yeah. And I figured out on the fly how to write a pair of full length novels back to back. But it was a very stressful time for me, uh, just because around the time I took on this gig, I had just gotten engaged and had started the process of moving out of an apartment I had lived in for 12 years in Manhattan. So I was moving to the outer boroughs with my fiance, now my wife. 
had to plan the wedding. And within like a week of moving out to uh, Queens, uh, one of my two cats passed away unexpectedly. And in the course of the move, I lost my notes for the books and couldn't find them again. So it was one thing after another, a lot of stress uh, being piled on top of uh, other stress. But it was uh, an interesting experience. I mean, I, I had a lot of passion for these two books, had a lot of ideas, but I also didn't have a lot of preconceptions, never written a full-length novel before. And then to suddenly dive into writing two of them back-to-back in a course of about six months or maybe seven months tops, that was a a baptism by fire, as they say. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's like usually if an author is going to write the first full-length novel, it's usually one, not two. But now that you've written so many novels since then, if you could tell yourself 15 years ago from the experience you've had since, what advice would you give yourself at the time that you wrote these novels? At the time, what I did not know was how many words a scene in an outline represents when you turn it into manuscript. Some of those scenes turned into a lot more words. Some of them turned into a lot fewer. A skill I did not possess at that beginning point was the understanding of how does my outline translate into being enough story? The first problem I had writing A Time to Kill was that I was nearing the end of my outline and running out of story and realizing that my manuscript was much too short. It was far short of what at that time Pocket considered to be a publication worthy length. Uh, at that time, they tended to prefer books of about 80,000 words, maybe 90,000 tops. But you had to hit at least 70 to be considered long enough to be published as a novel. And I had to scramble and add stuff at the last minute and try to pad things out to get A Time to Kill up to 72,000 words. A Time to Heal, which is a very different novel from A Time to Kill, uh, did not have that trouble. It clocked in at about 81 or 82,000 words. So I didn't need to pad that out. There was plenty there. I think if I could go back now, what I would tell myself is each story item or each you know uh, story element that I put into an outline usually adds up to about a thousand words, give or take, in a manuscript. So if I need to write an 80,000 word novel, I should have at least 75 to 80 story beats so that that will, by the time I'm done, come close to or even go a little bit over my target word count. Uh, so that would be the one key bit of advice I would have given myself back then. The rest of it, you just kind of have to feel your way through and try to be honest in the moment. Story advice, I don't really know that I would tell myself to do anything differently story-wise. Um, I made some interesting choices, particularly with Time to Heal, some pretty dark choices. I remember at the time some of the reviews I got for that book called it a betrayal of everything that was good and true in Star Trek. Um <laughs> And some of the repercussions uh, of the characters' actions in that book are going to continue to haunt them, even in new books that are coming out next year. So it's a book that ended up having a much longer impact than I would have expected. Well, I've got to say, for these being your first full-length novels, I'm incredibly impressed because A Time to Kill is just one of the most action-packed, fast reads in a Star Trek novel I've ever had. 
and that kind of, you know, it's just, you know, action beat after action beat, but it comes together in, I think, a really incredible novel. So the fact that that was your first is very impressive to me. It's like Tom Clancy, but without all the techno babble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Tom Clancy, but without 12 pages on the history of the phaser. Um, you know, part totally. Of, part of my objective when I plotted these two books out, and it was sort of a, a, a risky choice based on how everybody else in the a Time 2 miniseries had approached their uh, work. For instance, like with the, everybody else was sort of doing a story split into two parts for their duologies because it was, you know, books one and two were by John Bornholt, books three and four by Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore, Bob Greenbarger writing books five and six, and then I come along for seven and eight. Now, everybody else before me had basically just done one story split into two parts. I decided to do two related stories in different styles, whereas the first book, A Time to Kill, is a fast-paced techno-thriller war story, you know, race against the clock, can we take this planet before the Klingons get here and everything goes to hell? And it's very fast-paced, and it's all about action and forward motion and forward momentum. The second book, A Time to Heal, is a very different book. Whereas the first book is about the thrill of invasion. The second book is about the slog of occupation. And as a result, it's a book with a very different tone, a different pace, a different style, and a different message. Whereas the first book was all technological superiority saves the day. In the second book, our heroes are constantly getting bested by uh, supposedly you know, less sophisticated foes who are taking advantage of what's known as asymmetrical warfare. And they, when you have an opponent that knows you outclass them on a battlefield, they're going to start taking you out with guerrilla warfare. They're going to take you out with sabotage, sniper attacks, uh, bombings. They're going to hit you in unconventional places. They're not going to engage in direct head-to-head -head warfare. They're going to hit you in ways that maximize the damage to you while minimizing the losses to them. They're going to damage lots of your equipment while trying to minimize the loss of their personnel. And part of what inspired these two books was, of course, the 2003 invasion and subsequent occupation of Iraq by the United States, something that at the time I was very much opposed to. But I mean, people thought, well, you know, we rolled into Baghdad. You know, it was a, we, we took Iraq in what, 100 hours, 110 hours, something like that in, in 2003. And everybody thought, wow, that was amazing. What a feat. You know, we had almost no casualties and we won the war. And then what they didn't pay any attention to is we were there for another eight years and we ended up sending home tens of thousands uh, either dead or hope, you know, or permanently maimed. Uh, in some cases, double amputees, triple amputees, uh, people with traumatic brain injuries. I mean, it was just gruesome. The, the real price of that conflict was not paid in the invasion. The price of it was paid one step at a time, one insurgent incident at a time over a course of years. And that was what A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal was about. Well, I liked a lot of this series, so I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting to uh, disparage the other authors. But that's one of the things that I really appreciated about these two books was it really did feel like two full, complete novels, whereas some of the other stories previously just felt like there was kind of an arbitrary break in the middle of the story and then you had to go get the, the second book. And I have to say, right from the outset of A Time to Heal, the tone you set just immediately tells you this is a completely different book than the one that came before. 
one of the first things I did when I read this book was uh, I came into our outline and wrote down the first topic, which usually we don't do until we've completely read the book. But this, the first part of chapter one to me was just some of the most haunting prose I've ever read in a Star Trek novel. There's this imagery of total and utter despair and the suffering of the people of Tezwa in the wake of the Klingons retaliation. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never been in a war zone or an aftermath of one, but the picture you presented here was just so immersive and, you know, there's the the Tezwan citizen who's standing on the roof and singing a kind of lament. And then, mm-hmm. then they just jump and plunge to their death. And it's just, it's so shocking. And you immediately know that this is a completely different story than the one that came before. Oh, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, I think uh, a creative debt uh, is owed to the movie Black Hawk Down uh, for serving as a chief inspiration uh, for that tone and that style, uh, and also just for you know, for priming me mentally for the uh, the depictions of asymmetrical urban combat. Uh, but I did a lot of research into that, into things like uh, post traumatic stress disorder, into uh, insurgent tactics, into things like brainwashing, and I take a lot of our characters into some pretty dark places, like particularly Troy. Um, when Riker gets captured at the end of Time to Kill, becomes a POW, and is suffering through a POW experience during Time to Heal, Troy is crossing tons of ethical and professional lines and perhaps even you know coming into contravention of the Starfleet Code of Military Justice as she's engaging in enhanced interrogation tactics against captured high-value Tezwan military uh, personnel in an attempt to try and find Riker before it's too late. And the thing that, you know, a lot of people sort of lit into me, particularly some reviewers on Amazon and some bloggers, they accused me of trying to uh, glorify torture or enhanced interrogation or to serve as an apologist for it by making it uh, look acceptable by having Troy do it. And I think that those people who who said that were not paying attention because if they looked more closely at the end of the Troy storyline, what they would realize is at the end of it, all of her attempts using enhanced interrogation failed. They never worked. It never uh, yielded actionable intelligence. It yielded nothing of value whatsoever. Uh, and in fact, the last image from that story arc with Troy after they take away, after the Tesman officials come and take away the guy that she's been grilling, is her spirit broken, you know, bereft of hope, sitting alone in his cell after he's gone. And the purpose of that imagery is to say that the interrogator essentially is harming themselves spiritually with uh, this sort of behavior. And that, in fact, the person who is going to wind up spiritually imprisoned after this is her, not him. Uh, So there was a a lot going on there from a lot of different angles. Yeah, it definitely felt as if the torture was more on herself than the prisoner. He was just brushing her off. And like you said, nothing was ever seeming to work. If anything, I think this is the most vulnerable and as much as I've ever seen of torture to Troy ever in Star Trek. And it's because she gave into fear. And in a real sense, all torture is about 
fear. It's either fear on the part of the person who is engaging in it because they can't think of any other means of addressing the enemy that they think will work, or it's being done not because we want actionable intelligence, but because it is used as a, t- a tactic of intimidation against uh, oppressed and uh, vulnerable populations. There's no point to torture if nobody knows you're doing it, it is sort of a, a classic saying. The whole point of torture is not to gain information. The point of torture is torture. And that's the part that Troy loses sight of. She she thinks that she's simply using every quasi-legal means at her disposal in the service of some you know good objective. But really what's happening is she is succumbing to fear. And then you look at who it was that actually facilitates the rescue of Riker, and it's the female Teswin volunteer uh, who has been shown a certain amount of kindness and respect and decency by the Starfleet personnel she's served with. She's the one who winds up losing her life to save him. And it's, you know, in the end, it's not torture that saves Riker. It's decency. Yeah, good point. So let me just ask you this, though. Would this scene with Troy played out differently if it wasn't Riker that was missing, that was one of the other crew members? Quite possibly. I don't think Troy would have gone to this degree uh, of extremity if it wasn't Riker. If it wasn't her Imzadi, if it wasn't the guy to whom she's engaged, I can't see her going this far afield of her ethics and her morals. It's only when she stands to lose potentially everything that she cares about in her life in one shot that she is suddenly pushed to this brink and ends up making uh, a terrible choice. I'm sorry. I have to go back to the Black Hawk Down comment that you made because the funny thing about this is I had never watched that movie before. But in the middle of reading this book, it just so happens my wife and I watched the movie the other night. And as I was watching, I kept turning to my wife saying, this reminds me of the book I'm reading right now. <laughs> so uh, it's probably not accidental. So we're, so you uh, this movie ins- helped inspired some of this then. So, yeah, if you notice, it came out around the uh, the same time uh, or a little before it partly also inspired uh an SCE novella I wrote called Failsafe, which I sort of wrote as a warm-up to uh, Kill and Heal. But I remember a very moving experience when I went to see Black Hawk Down. I, fir- I first saw it in the theater during its original release. And uh, it's a very powerful film. It, it stays with you pretty heavy, even after it ends. So, you know, the movie ends and the credits are rolling and you just kind of feel like you've been, you know, hit by a tidal wave. And all you can kind of do is just sit there and process, or at least that's how I felt. Some people are getting up and leaving the theater and a couple of rows ahead of me in the theater. There's a couple and the guy has that sort of classic jarhead haircut that you, you take one look at a guy's haircut and you go, that guy's military or ex-military or reserve or something. And he's having some sort of tense sort of voce, you know, conversation with his female companion who he's at the movie with. And then he just snaps. He goes, you don't understand. You weren't there. And he gets up and he walks out and she just sits there shell shocked. I'm thinking, holy, holy Toledo. Was that guy in Somalia? Was he in Mogadishu? He looked the right age. He had the right look. For all I know, I was in a New York City theater one night seeing this movie with a guy who lived through it. 
and the intensity of that emotion, the fact that, it, you know, I mean, remember, these are events that happened, I think, during the, uh, the Clinton administration back around like 1991, like near the end of his, uh, you know, like I think maybe his third year in office. And this movie, I think, came out well over a decade later. And for someone to still have that kind of a raw emotional wound, it was very moving. Uh, and it made a it made a very intense impression on me. And, and intense is definitely the word because that's how I felt this novel played out. It was very intense when it comes to war. And most Star Trek stories don't get this intense when it comes to war. And in a sense, it almost didn't feel like Star Trek. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. But what I mean is it really felt like realistic Star Trek, meaning this is how it really would be if there was a war and Starfleet was involved. It wouldn't be it ends in 55 minutes. This is, you yeah. know, there's intense emotions and raw things that are going on with these characters. Yeah. And uh, I tried to get into the heads of the minor characters throughout a time to kill, and then also in the early sections of A Time to Heal, I really wanted the reader to get to know and empathize with and care about, you know, the rank and file, the little guys, the security officers, the ground troops, so that when they inevitably, by the end of A Time to Heal, one by one, and then suddenly in large numbers at a time, suddenly start getting cut down. I just, I wanted it to hit like a freight train. I wanted the reader just to go, holy crap, he really went there. He took these guys out and some of them just go in the most unglorious means. Uh, I think there's a, a friend of mine and uh, a friend of Bob Greenberger's uh, had characters named in their honor uh, in earlier books in the A Time 2 series. And I carried some of those characters forward and I had a scene where they were just kind of doing Pulp Fiction style banter over lunch in a courtyard. And then the next thing you know, uh, an improvised explosive device goes off and they're all dead. And they're just gone in a flash. And it's just, it's, there's no glory to it. There's no meaning to it. There's no greater uh, significance. It's just a bunch of people eating lunch got blown up. Yeah, there's so many intense moments like that in, in this novel. And uh, one of the things, I'm going to jump around a little bit in, uh, in the timeline of the novel and kind of what we're talking about. One of the big themes that I felt that this novel brought across was the idea of war changing a person and the experiences that these people go through really hardening them. We talked a bit about Troy mm -hmm. and she laments that she was ready and willing to do violence and harm to General Minza while he was in the custody of the Enterprise crew. And, you know, with all that he had done, Troy found that she could barely restrain herself from wanting to see him suffer. And then... There was there was one line where Kin Chan, who's the 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 deposed uh, leader of Tezwa, who's staging these guerrilla attacks, he kind of notes the surprise that the Federation, the Starfleet troops, uh, kept up their um, kept up their side of the battle and and kept coming, even with all the casualties he'd, he'd inflicted, and noted that the Dominion War had changed the Federation and hardened them into a force to be reckoned with. Exactly. These, this was not the easy pushover Federation that he remembers from 10 years or 15 years ago. This is a Federation that's been put through a bloody gristmill of a war against a, an absolutely brutal opponent and has come out on the other side not screwing around anymore. 
This is not Starfleet. You know, we're going to come up politely, knock and bring you a basket of muffins and introduce ourselves and give you our business card. No, this is we're going to send in a group of body armored guys with uh, heavy pulse rifles. We're going to take down your door. We're going to blow up your roof. We're going to fill your staircases and we're going to hit you with uh, stun grenades. And then we're going to shoot you because we're not screwing around anymore. Uh, I tried to, you know, depict what would it look like with Starfleet level technology if these guys behaved like professional soldiers, not like weekend warriors, not like the reluctant scientist who has to pick up a phaser that you see in so many episodes of Star Trek. What happens when you see thousands of trained infantry, special forces, people who have been trained not to lose their minds in combat, but to hold the line? Now you start seeing a very different face. Now Starfleet looks very different. Now it looks like a very dangerous thing. And you start thinking, what would happen if these guys wound up taking their orders from the wrong people? Now you've got a dangerous tool that you don't want falling into the wrong hands. Just as you didn't want the Nadian pulse cannons falling into the hands of Kinchon, and they did. Now you start realizing Starfleet is much the same thing now. Now you don't want it falling into the wrong hands. Well, speaking of taking orders from the wrong people, that brings us into uh, kind of the conspiracy that's happening behind the scenes here. We have the Federation president, Min Zeif, who I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Perfect. And he's got his chief of staff, Cole Azernal, and secretary of military intelligence, Nalino Quafina. And they're kind of involved in this conspiracy to hide the fact that they provided these Nadion Pulse weapons to Tezwa. And, you know, they have this whole complicated um, ruse that's been thought of by Azernal to plant evidence misdirecting it towards the Tholians, but then actually the Romulans, you know, and I kind of wanted to ask, did the president and his staff, did they have good intentions that went wrong? Uh, And was this cover up kind of the only way out in their minds to avoid a war with the Klingons? Or do you think they just got too caught up in everything and we're in way over their heads here. From their point of view, they started out with good intentions. Remember that the only reason they violated certain treaty accords that were in place with the Klingons regarding things like the placement of Nadian pulse weapons on planets along the Klingon border was because at that time during the Dominion War, if you think back to DS9, there was a brief period during the war when the Klingons turned against the Federation and severed the treaty, severed the Treaty of Alliance. Now we have to look at the Klingons as potentially hostile. At the very least, they're not helping us anymore. They're a potential threat. They no longer represent a safe ground for us to retreat to. It's They're now a wall against which our back will be put. So with the Klingons now suddenly hostile, the Dominion pressing its advantage and gaining ground by the day, Zeif and Azernal and Quafina and probably others within the administration are realizing, well, we need options. And yes, it would have been against the law or the treaty or whatever with the Klingons to put these cannons here, but the Klingons just told us to go pound sand. So we need them. It's a good fallback strategy This is a planet nobody will think is going to have this kind of armament. We can use it to set a trap for the Dominion. If we have to fall back to make a last stand, that's a great place to do it. This is a great way to do it. 
So for the, you know, for the sake of saving the Federation, saving Starfleet, they're under pressure. It's wartime. The Klingons have already turned their back on them. From their point of view, at the time, they did nothing wrong. They did what had to be done during wartime to save their country, to save their people, to save lives in their military. It's only after the Klingons have come back into the fight and retroactively those treaties come back into effect and are considered once again uh, having legal force that we are now in breach. Now, it doesn't matter that the breach occurred during an interval uh, during which, you know, supposedly these treaties were abrogated. The point is that they are abrogated. And now we are, you know, under an obligation to sort of cough up and say, all right, yeah, look, we, we screwed up. We got to pull these out of here. And they don't. That's where they screw up. It's easier to leave them in place and do nothing than to, you know, have to go through the public removal of this stuff, especially, you know, cause you, you figure now you got Kinshawn on side. The Dominion War ends. The Klingons are back on side. Things are humming along. You think things are going great. And then Kinshawn, because he's an idiot, decides to start provoking the Klingons because he knows his world is untouchable. The Klingons don't know that. The Klingons come in to show this guy what's what. They end up getting their butts handed to them by these Nadian pulse cannons. Thousands are dead. And now the Klingons are going to have questions. Questions like, where did these get those weapons? These guys should not have technology like this. Where did it come from? And the only reasonable answer, once they get a look at it, is going to be, that's Federation technology. Why did we just get our taints handed to us by Federation technology on our own doorstep? This is going to be a political scandal, a nightmare of epic proportions. And considering at that time, again, look at how tenuous relations were between the Federation and the Klingons at that point in the narrative history, especially with the recent collapse of the Romulan uh, Council uh, because of Shinzon. Everything is unstable. The whole region is unstable. Things are a powder keg. And the last thing you want is one spark that sets it all off. You'd have an Archduke Ferdinand moment, for crying out loud. So you've got thousands of dead Klingons. Somebody needs to eat the blame. And the Federation says it can't be us because if it's us, that's war. And we lose our pretty much our only major remaining ally. And that's not a, a blow we can stand to take right now. Somebody else has to eat this crap sandwich. I don't care who it is, the president says, but somebody has to eat this crap sandwich for the good of the nation, for the good of our people, for the good of the peace. Someone else has to eat this. And that's how it happens. It starts with good intentions. Then it just becomes out of sight, out of mind. And then when it blows up in your face because of one bad actor, now you suddenly realize, I don't want to take the blame for this, or I can't risk taking the blame for this. And that is what starts the dominoes on an absolutely misbegotten attempt at a cover-up that ends up taking lives, destroying treasure, leading to the deaths of thousands of Starfleet personnel, getting millions of Tezwins killed through collateral damage and blowback. I mean, millions of lives get lost. This is a massive, massive political screw-up, a moral screw-up, a criminal screw-up. This is a, a, a controversy of epic proportions. This is the kind of thing that if you let it out at the time that it's fresh and tempers are hot about it, everything goes wrong. 
you could literally send the whole quadrant into war. That's why these guys did what they did. Were they wrong? Probably. But did they do it because they thought they were doing the right thing? They thought they were keeping the peace. They were still wrong, but their motives were not selfish. They weren't doing it to make themselves rich. They weren't doing it because they thought it would enhance their power. They weren't doing it to advance their position. They weren't doing it to deliberately hurt a friend. They were doing it because they were afraid that if they didn't, if they didn't bury their mistake and shift the blame, that it was only going to get worse. So it was a case of we, we, they chose what they thought was the lesser evil. So would you say in the real world, that's probably how most wars start with the best of intentions, but something gets screwed up? No, I don't actually have anywhere near that much faith in real human beings. I think most real human beings are completely amoral, selfish crap birds uh, who start wars. I think a lot of wars are started by people who run arms and manufacturing companies that serve military industrial complex needs. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of wars get started as political diversions so that people can be made to hate somebody on the outside of the country rather than the people inside who are really screwing them over. Uh, I think most wars in real life are matters of opportunism. Uh, and those that aren't, those that are fought out of genuine conviction tend to be fought out of interests like racism, uh, or for genocide, religious persecution, um, no, I, I don't think most wars in the real world start with good intentions. I think there's enough opportunity for diplomacy that if people really had good intentions, they could find another avenue. I hate to I hate to agree with you, but I, I can't find fault with anything you just said. Uh, wow. I have to write about a happy future for Star Trek. It doesn't believe it doesn't mean I believe that people are like that now. I, I try to offer a vision of what we could choose to be if we wanted to. And I do that because I keep hoping that it will inspire people in the long run to choose to be better. We have to choose the future of Star Trek. It's not going to happen accidentally. People have to want it and they have to actively choose it and encourage others to actively choose it. And uh, there's always going to be those who will not. And you just have to get majority opinion going the other way. I think actually uh, Captain Kirk said something similar. We choose, I choose not to kill today mm -hmm. or something like that. That's right. And yeah, we need to do that for sure. Speaking of this whole conspiracy, part of the way that it's executed is through these mysterious agents. And it didn't occur to me until the very end of the novel where you actually mentioned the phrase section 31 that I realize. The phrase section 31 hasn't been said in this book up until this point. That's right. But yeah, and I thought that was that was really clever. And I part of it is hindsight. The character of Lahan, I want to say is this are these two novels the first time we ever see her? Uh yeah, I invented Lahan for these two books. Okay. So yeah, it, kind of with the benefit of hindsight as soon as she showed up, I was like, "Oh, okay, section 31. Cool." Um, well, not cool, but yeah, but yeah, this is, these are the books where I invented her and, uh, Zaitsev, um, as my sort of chief representatives of section 31 in the post dominion war era. Well, this, uh, so the, the whole conspiracy to plant the, this evidence and then eventually to bring it to light and then disgrace the Zeif presidency it's just, it's amazing to me how many 
you know, how, the fingers that that Section 31 had in the pie here to kind of manipulate everything. The fact that Admiral Ross is so deeply involved with them at the end came as a bit of a surprise, but probably shouldn't knowing that he has some history with them in deep space. Nine. It started during the dominion war. That's when they put him under their thumb. Right. With, um, and the episode I'm thinking of is, uh, inter arma einem sealant, I guess where yeah. he's very obviously imbre- Im- embroiled in that whole thing. I've got to ask with this whole idea of bringing them into this conspiracy, did you have any idea at that point that it would have such huge repercussions going forward in the literary universe such that you know the novel coming out next year is still kind of dealing with the fallout from this i had no idea the snowball that i was about to release down the mountainside no not not at that time and if you were think back to how the book ended to how a time to heal ended they actually did not exposed the Zeif administration at that time for what happened on Tezwa. Mm-hmm. Tezwa, the presence of the Nadian cannons was buried. Klingons weren't told. The Federation public wasn't told. The whole mess, the whole thing was swept under the rug. Starfleet buried it. They buried all of it and they ended up eating most of the crap sandwich and taking responsibility for most of the nightmare of what happened on Tezwa, with the exception, of course, being the carpet bombing done by the Klingons. But Starfleet ended up having to eat most of that and covered up most of what the Zeif administration did. Section 31 mopped up, bleached, and, you know, otherwise completely removed all the rest of the evidence against Zeif. But the price for that was they took him away and they put him in a ditch and they shot him. Uh, is, I think, you know, the pretty much what we're meant to take away from the end of the book. The thing is, it did not have to be anywhere near as ham-fisted or as unprofessional or amateur hour as later authors made it out to be. Uh, I think Keith DeCandido did some of the first follow-up uh, with this, I think, in uh, his book, A Singular Destiny, which followed my Destiny trilogy, and I think, and also Articles of the Federation, I think, dealt with this to a certain degree. And I think he had it so that it was kind of painfully obvious that after tendering his resignation, Zeif seems to vanish from the public eye. Unlike most ex-presidents who remain around and do their thing and maybe start a charity foundation or something, Zeif just seems to fall off the edge of the universe and nobody sees him again. And this starts raising all these questions. And I have to admit, had it been up to me, it would have gone very differently. Maybe Quafina could have dropped off the face of the earth. Nobody would care if Quafina vanished. He'd say, well, he went back to his ocean people. He's swimming around underwater. That's why you don't see him. Uh, Azernal, well, Azernal is kind of a big figure. He's hard to get rid of. I would have had Section 31 set up a couple of doppelgangers who do things like show up at public events, cut ribbons, say a few words, start a foundation here and there. I'd have them, you know, contract a ghostwriter to put out a fake autobiography for Zeif, you know, 10 years later, you know, keep the guy you know, on the edge of you know, the periphery of public life, but keep him out of politics. And even if you do have actually assassinated the real Zeif, you'd set up doubles. You wouldn't want to raise the question of where the hell is Zeif. So it was other authors who turned it into this amateur hour, bungled, obvious assassination slash disappearance. And I was like, well, that was never my intention. And why would an editor have let section 31 be that stupid? But 
at that point, the decision was out of my hands. If it had been up to me, Section 31 would have just very neatly mopped it all up. But that is not how it played out. And other books written by other authors and some by me in subsequent years uh, have continued the sort of rolling ball of Section 31 getting its hands involved in various other conspiracies, various other interstellar incidents, uh, having dealings with things, again, like the Dominion, but also uh, finding themselves up against uh, other sinister forces, uh, and to a certain extent, even getting involved in the Mirror Universe, which I will note I did before Discovery did. And uh, it's not done yet. We, uh, of course, as anyone who's read my recent Section 31 novels, uh, dis- uh, Disavowed, Followed by Control, knows uh, Section 31 just very publicly got their taints handed to them. And got, and they're now being arrested en masse and put on trial. Um, and they're taking down lots of people with them. Everybody, for instance, all those admirals who were involved in that cover-up are getting questioned, at least the ones who are still alive. Uh, so anybody who's not already dead, uh, like Owen Paris, who died in the Borg invasion of 2381, anybody involved in the 2379 Tesla crisis and the Min Zeif resignation, let's just say they're facing what are known as Article 32 military hearings. That's an inquest that precedes a general court-martial. So a lot of people, including a lot of familiar names in uh, books coming out next year, you're going to see the crap is starting to hit the rotary oscillator. You seem to know a lot about the military. Is that because you served or is, or are you just uh, someone who reads a lot about the military? Uh, well, I mostly because I read a lot, but also I have uh, a lot of family that served. My brother, my father, my stepfather, my uncles, uh, a number of my cousins, uh, several of my friends. Um I never actually served. I did spend uh, a week that felt like two uh, aboard the aircraft carrier USS Eisenhower on what was known as a Tiger Cruise. Uh, For those who are unfamiliar with the term, a Tiger Cruise is a promotional event sponsored by the U.S. Navy in which members of the crew, both enlisted men and officers and NCOs, bring aboard male civilian friends and relatives, preferably of recruitment age, And they let them experience Navy life for a week to see what it is, see what it is they do aboard the ships, what life aboard the ship is like. Um, Foolishly, the Navy seems to think that this is a a recruitment tool. I can't think of any better way to make sure people don't join the Navy than to let them try it out for a week. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I'll tell you, during that one week that I spent with my uh, older brother, uh, who was a Navy nuclear electrical engineer, on the Eisenhower, uh, the Eisenhower now being a decommissioned vessel. Uh, During the week that I spent aboard that ship, getting to know him and his crewmates and the other guys in his department and the other guys who were in his birthing unit, uh, I picked up so many Navy stories and Navy lingo and uh, just sort of the little slice of life, the tenor of life aboard a floating tin can city. Uh, You know, you learn little things like to be in the Navy is to basically be in prison with the additional risk of drowning, Um, (laughs) things like that. Uh, You you pick up the little stories from the engineers about how they're always the last ones to get to the mess hall for chow. So they occasionally pull little stunts where they'll 
send one guy up carrying like, you know, a, a test rod that they use to test the Geiger counters. And the rest of them will come up wearing what they call the canary suits, the radiation protective gear. And they'll have a bunch of Geiger counters set on test and they'll make it look like he's radioactive and they'll chase him through the mess hall and he'll scream things like, Oh, you'll never take me alive. I'll infect the ship. And everybody clears the mess hall to get away from the radioactive guy. And then the engineers take off their canary suits and have lunch. <laughs> he tells me about the feud between the sailors and the Marines because uh, the Marines and the sailors, they have to exist together aboard the ship. They don't have to like each other. Uh, for instance, right near the mess hall is strangely enough where the access to the main armory is like the main weapons locker. And there's a Marine stationed outside who guards access to that weapons locker. What the sailors will tell you or what they told the tigers was, do not look at the monkey. Do not talk to the monkey. Do not try to play with the monkey. The monkey will shoot you. Seriously, do not talk to the monkey. Do not look at the monkey. Do not make eye contact with the monkey. And then they would do things like, for instance, uh, they would do test drills, uh, call opera, you know, condition zebra throughout the ship. And at condition zebra, everybody's supposed to be at their duty station. And the Marines go running through the ship in their full battle rattle gear and they're supposed to be on very strict timetables and they go down all the same stairwells and they go running through the corridors and Marines. If you've ever met Marines, they are punctual when they get a routine down, they master it and they can execute it precisely the same way down to the second, every single time. Well, the sailors figured this out with stopwatches and they would say, have you noticed 43 seconds past the hour is when the Marine is going to cross in front of this watertight uh, hatch. Let's test that. Next time there's Condition Zebra. So they call Condition Zebra. They start the stopwatch and they go 41, 42. They kick the watertight door open. The door goes bang right into the running Marine. The helmet goes one way. The rifle goes another way. The Marine goes straight down. The sailors go, yep, right on time. And they close the watertight door and go back down to the bowels. Little stories like this. I, I, I came away with dozens of these narratives from my brother and his service mates. Um, and then the rest of it, I just, I pick up by osmosis from talking with Dayton Ward, uh, or doing research. And so as a result, you know, you, you pick up little phrases and then you adapt them to Star Trek, like the uniform code of military justice becomes the Starfleet code of military justice. Um, you know, the article 32 hearing as a preliminary inquest, uh, which has very you know specific rules regarding evidence and differs in many ways from a grand jury in that it's a public hearing, yada, yada, yada. So I, I've picked up a lot of this stuff over the years and I try to apply it. I just wish that I were given a chance to share my deep uh, reservoir of military uh, knowledge and verbiage with the writers on the show, but strangely they don't seem to care. So there you well, are. I also assume that you probably have not been captured and tortured and interrogated like Riker was in this book. So I would assume- no, but I got beat up pretty bad in high school a few times. <laughs> so, okay, from that experience of being beat up in high school, when you wrote about Riker being captured and tortured by Kinshaw and his people, um, mm -hmm. you know, he is then set up to be executed later, but General Yalon gives, gives him the phase cutter to escape. So I was mm -hmm. just wondering... Um, and what experiences or things that you knew about torture interrogation that you worked into the scene and how do you think this it changed Riker going forward? 
Well, obviously, as I said before, I did a lot of research into POWs, um, into how many of them survived, how some of them escaped, uh, how often and unexpectedly officers on the other side who were uncomfortable with torture would sometimes break ranks and surreptitiously or clandestinely do things to aid and abet escapes. Uh, that, that sort of you know struck me as an interesting factoid that I hadn't heard talked about a lot. As for how the experience affected Riker, I think Riker is somebody who has had more than his share of pain and suffering and loss in his life. Uh, and of course, in the nine book series, in the two preceding volumes, he's just lost his father. So this is a very fresh wound emotionally for Riker. And now he's got this additional physical trauma being added on to that. I think for Riker, the big takeaway, once he gets out of this alive and sees how many people have died, you know, to facilitate his survival is that he comes away with a new appreciation for whatever time he's got left drawing breath. He has sort of come up against that specter of mortality in a way that he hasn't either before or hasn't in a long time and is realizing I may have fewer days ahead of me than behind. I don't know, but I got to get on with my life. I, I've been waiting for opportunities. I've been putting off opportunities, but the thing that he really sees, and this is of course the last scene of the book is when he's saying to Troy, I got comfortable. I got complacent. I liked where I was. I lost my sense of ambition I stopped striving. I stopped wanting to be more. I stopped wanting to be better. Uh, and I could be. And the problem is, is that I'm not just hurting myself by not wanting to be better, by not fulfilling my, my full potential. I'm hurting Data. Data should have been XO half a decade ago. He should have been first officer on the ship. I have cost him years in his career because I didn't get out of his way, because I was too comfortable, because I didn't want to shake up my life because I was scared. He says, well, I'm done being scared. I'm done being comfortable. I'm taking command of the Titan. That's the moment Riker says, I got to wake up. My life could end tomorrow. I need to do more. I need to be more. I cannot just sit and tread water with my life anymore. I need to get up and go forward, and I need to strive to be more than I am. And I think that what informed that experience for Riker is part of what drove me into writing novels starting around 2000, which was my own uh, near-death experience where I very nearly checked out. I suffered a massive internal hemorrhage uh, in, I believe, late February of uh, 2000. And for about a week, I thought I had a really exotic flu because I didn't understand what the symptoms were. And Finally, a friend who was a medical doctor who'd heard I was sick called and said, what's wrong, buddy? And I gave him the timeline of symptoms and everything. And he said, no, you don't have a flu. You have an internal hemorrhage, and I think you're bleeding to death, and I need you to come to the ER right now. And it turned out he was right. I had been bleeding internally for about a week. And when I walked into the ER, and they couldn't believe that I walked in under my own power, they said that a man of my age, height, and weight should have between 16 and 18 units of whole blood in his body. They said, when you checked in, you had six. Oh, wow. We've been transfusing you for 90 minutes, and you've Ooh, gone yeah. down to 4.5, which means you are now bleeding faster than we can transfuse. They said, so we're going to have to move you up to surgical ICU, where we're going to attempt to cauterize the damage in your stomach 
and upper intestine with acid. But if we fail, we may have to open you up. So we need you to sign this, and we need you to sign this and this. And to make you comfortable, we're going to give you a nice shot of Demerol. So here you go. And the Demerol takes effect, and I start to fade out. And it's just like the movies where the edges of your vision go first, and then you're looking down that tunnel. And I'll tell you, at that moment where I'm realizing I'm bleeding faster than they're transfusing, and I have no idea what's going to happen next, I could fade out here. This could be it. This could be the end. And in that one moment, I'll tell you something, I was not thinking about the money I didn't make. And I wasn't thinking about, you know, the possessions I didn't have. I was thinking about the people I wasn't going to see again, the places I wasn't going to go, the books and stories I wasn't going to get to tell. That was all I cared about in that moment was the, the people in my life and the things I wanted to create. And I came out of it. I spent a week in the hospital. They put me back together. I finally got out. I spent weeks in recovery and whatnot. And, uh, I just, I, I got very lucky. Uh, I, I could have died if I hadn't checked into the hospital the day that I did, I would have died. I'd have been gone in 2000 and nobody would have probably ever heard my name. Uh, but I came out of it with sort of a whole new take on life. I said, you know what? I hate my job. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go get a better job. And that's how I got a job at the sci-fi channel. I said, you know what? Uh, I want to get back into making short films just as a hobby but I've been afraid to take out a bank loan to buy the equipment because I was afraid of going back into debt after paying off my student loans. I said, screw it. It's just money. Who cares? Screw it. Take the loans out. And I did it. And I bought a bunch of gear and I made short films and you know that didn't go anywhere, but it was fun. I did it because I cared and I wanted to do it. I said, I'm going to get back out in the world. I'm, you know what? My, my girlfriend at the time, I said, you know, my girlfriend treats me badly. She's mean to me. She doesn't treat me with respect. I need to find somebody better than this. I would rather be alone than be with somebody who treats me like this. I'm going to break up with her, and I'm going to find someone who treats me right. And I did. And so I went through that moment of thinking you've lost it all, and you come out the other side and you go, all right, life is short. Life can end when you least expect it. Get on with it. Seriously, get on with it. And I took that experience, and I funneled it into Riker. Oh, that's incredible. I, wow. Um, I got to say a lot of that makes a lot of sense and, and really comes through in this story and the, the data aspect as well, reading that I thought was really good because it was something I had never thought of. And, you know, as I was reading Riker talk about data, it all just kind of came together and made a lot of sense. Like data is, uh, if you count Captain Beverly Picard in all good things, the only character in the next generation not promoted or offered a promotion at any point. And, you know, that's really interesting how you wove that story into what Riker's going through. And then on the flip side is like other people's reaction to everything that's happened. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Jim Pert and Kel Parham, because I think they have a really interesting story here as well. Oh, yeah. Where they've gone through all of this and, and Jim has seen firsthand all of this hell. And there's one line that just really struck me that basically said for the next few days, the dead would outnumber the living on the enterprise as it transported these over 2000 Starfleet casualties. It's, it's almost the most satisfying scene, oddly enough, where um, Kel realizes that Jim doesn't have his rank insignia on and she takes hers off and they walk off together. Like that felt really satisfying. Like they were taking charge, you know, 
in some ways a little bit of a defeat, but also that they were taking charge of their destiny and saying, we don't want a part of this anymore. And it was really moving. Well, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, Jim Peart is meant to represent the, uh, the truly moral man in a time of war. Uh, a guy who is forced by uh, circumstances to become complicit in things that he would not have chosen. And he thinks that he's serving something good. He thinks he's serving something noble. And it's only after the fact that he realizes that his service has been used to promote something that he doesn't believe in. And he can't live like that anymore. And it's important to him to be true to himself always. And and the first thing to him is that if he can't continue to do this job with honor, if he doesn't feel that this is something honorable for him to do with his life, he's got to stop and go find something else. He can't be a party to this. So the resignation of Jim Peart and Kel Parham, that is meant to sort of be, as you said, it's, it's sort of an uplifting moment in its way, as sad as it is, it's about them taking a moral stand. It's them opting out and saying, we have a choice as commissioned officers not to continue promulgating a, uh, a system that we now believe to be either corrupt or at the very least flawed. And we don't have faith in it anymore. And we're going to leave. And they're able to walk away with their honor, with their integrity, with their dignity and with each other which is a lot more than a lot of other people came out of this story with. Um, and part of the reason I wanted Jim Peart to be that uh, sort of emotional linchpin for the two books and, and you know, that, that sort of point of view of morality within a system uh, that was an homage of course, to Neil Peart, uh, the percussionist and lyricist of rush. Uh, this character was named as an homage to, uh, to Neil and I got to uh, give him a copy of the book via Getty. Uh, I got to meet Getty and Alex backstage in 2000, I think 2007. So the two, I think it was 2007. I, I got to meet them during the Snakes and Arrows tour. Um, maybe it was Vapor Trails. I'll have to double check that. Probably Vapor Trails. Anyway, um, I, gave, I, I gave a copy of the book, uh, actually both books, Kill and Heal, uh, signed for Neil and uh, I gave them to Getty and Getty passed them along to Neil. And a couple months later, after the tour was over, I got a nice email uh, from Neil Peart thanking me for the books. He said it was rather strange to see a character with his rather odd surname uh, in a Star Trek story. Wasn't quite sure how he felt about it, uh, but he wished me well. And uh, so that was pretty cool. So I got an email from Neil Peart. So there's that. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Last thing I want to say is, you know, this book has a lot to say. And I think people that can't see past some of the their preconceived notions about what Star Trek is or what Star Trek should be or what, you know, person A thinks Star Trek should be and comes away from this, you know, thinking that this flies in the face of what Star Trek is all about really needs to give this another look because you know, there's a lot of really good introspective stuff here that I think, you know, on the face of it, 
some might say that it, you know, doesn't have the flavor of Star Trek or whatever, but I think it has a very Star Trekian message in the end, which is, you know, this sort of idea that, you know, corrupt leadership and that sort of thing is something that shouldn't be stood for and should kind of try to be overcome. So, yeah, I really think this definitely has a lot of good Star Trek stuff to say. And I would just ask if there's anything else with regards to this book or this uh, pair of books that you feel that you'd like to say. Well, I think there were obviously so many different storylines. For instance, Data proving himself as an XO and showing that he really did have that capacity to excel. And there were bits of foreshadowing with Data and not realizing his death. You know, For instance, during the attack on Tezwa, he is thinking in terms of his own existence as something that can go on for hundreds or even thousands of years. He's not even considering the possibility of his own mortality. And this is particularly tragic when you realize that he's going to be dead in a couple of months after this book. Um, And then of course the other story arc that we were pushing forward with was Picard and Beverly Crusher and sort of showing Picard the danger of putting off for too long you know, the romantic pursuit of the woman that he really wanted to be with where she finds herself, you know, with a kind of just a short term dalliance with a a doctor named Michael Hughes, uh, who she meets on Tezwa. But I mean, there's is, you know, sort of one of those classic romances during wartime, you know, in the heat of battle, they, uh, you know, were both tending the wounded and yada, 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 and things happen. And it sort of shows that Beverly is still a woman with needs, with desires, uh, who wants to live a full life and deserves to have that full life. And Picard is still too much in, you know, uh, remains of the day, you know, mode to realize that he's the guy who ought to be giving her that life. And, you know, he's like, well, you know, she's found someone and I should move out of the way. Oh, Picard, you stuffy old dingbat. Get in there. Get in the game. But he hasn't made that connection yet. I was told to leave that sort of leap of logic and love and faith for uh, a subsequent book and not to uh, step on author's toes. So I I was not able to resolve their storyline as poignantly as I wanted to. But I think there is some poignance in Picard feeling like maybe he's missed the boat. That moment where he shows up wanting to have that sort of breakfast, make that reconnection with Beverly and feeling like maybe he has waited too long and feeling that remorse over that. So in that respect, the book is uh, in a lot of ways all about people wondering if it's too late, people wondering if this experience has changed them and if it's done so for the better. Uh, But what's going to be really interesting is going to be seeing sort of the final fallout. I mean, we saw the, the first, you know, repercussions of major fallout in my Star Trek section 31 novel control, which came out in March of 2017. Um, although it's not officially announced yet, I am working on a, a new Star Trek TNG book, which will be following up on uh, the events of control. And it's going to be coming full circle for me in that it's going to have to address head on the events of a time to kill and a time to heal uh, 15 years later or 16 years later in real time, actually about 15, actually when it comes out, yeah, it'll be 15 years later, uh, in real time since the release of those two books. And in story time, it'll be about six or seven years. 
but eventually the truth does come out and Jean-Luc Picard is going to have to face the music. Very exciting. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, uh, wor- the working title for that book is Collateral Damage. Ooh, perfect. And we're also gonna we're also gonna be seeing uh, some callbacks to uh, Destiny as well, and finding out that even though we think all is well, all these years later, the level of damage and devastation that was done by the board continues to have uh, its effects and take its toll upon Alpha Quadrant uh, society. Excellent. Well, we'll have to definitely keep our eye out for that. Is there anything else that you're working on that our readers should know about? I know uh, your Dark Arts series is the the first book I absolutely loved, and I'm eagerly awaiting the second book. How's how's that series going? Okay, uh, right now through the end of the month of November. I don't know if this podcast will be out before the end of November, but through the end of November, the first book, The Midnight Front, is on sale as a Kindle ebook for two ninety nine, and uh, the second book. The Iron Codex is all done. It's coming out January 15 from Tor Books. You can pre-order it now. It'll be available in trade paperback, ebook, and digital audio. We have a new narrator reading the uh, ebook, uh, not ebook, the uh, audio book for Iron Codex. We had uh, a guy, uh, Robert uh, Petkoff, I think is his name, uh, had done the reading on the first book. And Star Trek readers are probably familiar with him if uh, you listen to Star Trek audiobooks. Um, he's done the narration on uh, several of my Trek uh, audiobooks before this. The Iron Codex is going to be read by a woman named Natasha Sudek. And part of the reason that came about was that I asked the producers if they would consider hiring a woman to read the book because in book two, we changed main, ca- uh, main character from Cade, uh, who was the main character of book one, Anya is going to be the main character in book two. So to reflect that shift in point of view and perspective uh, for the second book, I asked if we could get a female reader and the producers ultimately decided that that was a good idea, a direction they wanted to go. So I'm very excited to have Natasha reading book two. Book three, The Shadow Commission, uh, I thought I was done writing it. I had turned it in about a month ago and thought it was off my plate and I'd be doing other things by now. And then I got some feedback on it. And that feedback enabled me to see a flaw that somehow had slipped past me at multiple stages and had gotten past a few other folks. And once I sat down with it and realized what it meant, I realized it meant that in a 400 page manuscript, pretty much everything after page 252 had to be deleted. And I had to go back to blank pages and start over again. And rethink the entire ending of the book. Plus, I have to rewrite the front part, too. I I have to rewrite the first 250 at some point. But I also just have to write a whole new ending for the book. Everything after 252 just didn't work. So it all went in the trash, and I wrote a new outline. I'm I'm working on the pages now. I'm now in the throes of a massive high-speed rewrite because I've got to have it back to my editor before the end of January keep my uh, publishing slot but assuming i make that deadline uh it should be out june 9 2020 yeah i saw you mention that on facebook about having to do that whole rewrite this is the first time you've ever had to do something to that extent yeah it's a career first for me i've never had a book that i had to rip out that much of it and just go and into the trash and start over i've never had to do that before this is 
I think my 36th or 37th book. And it's the first time I've ever just had to throw away so much of a book that I thought was written and done. Oh, that's frustrating. But, <laughs> but necessary. I mean, in good conscience, once I was made aware of the narrative structural flaw that basically in, you know uh, affected the entire back half of the work, once I saw it, in good conscience, I could not let the book go into the world like that. So I had to call my editor and pull it back and say, I'm sorry, I know this is going to screw up the schedule, production's going to hate me, but I got to pull it. I got to rewrite it. I got to do it over. It's not good enough. I can't let it go out. Fortunately, it's not a tie-in novel, so I, as the author who owns the book, I have that option of saying, it's not good enough, I need to do it over. It just means my book gets rescheduled. If I had screwed up a Star Trek book like this, uh, boy, I would be in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> Let's hope I don't make that mistake on a Trek book. Well, where can uh, our listeners find you online if they want to keep tabs on how the rewrite's going? Well, you can always follow me on Facebook. Uh, my author page is facebook.com slash the David Mac. Uh, you can follow my personal page if you like. Uh, not a lot there, but you know, follow me if you like. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at David Allen Mac. That's A-L-A-N, David Allen Mac. Um, and you can find my website, davidmack.pro. That's davidmack.pro. Awesome. Well, thanks as usual so much for joining us. We always really love having yeah, you on the really show. Yeah, we really enjoyed the book too. Oh, yes. thanks a lot, guys. It's uh, great. And it's a real blast from the past uh, getting to talk about a book that came out, you know, almost 14 years ago. And But it's just, <laughs> it's, it's really just kind of a great coincidence that the book that I'm going to be writing next happens in many ways to be a direct follow-up to it. So it was a, a great time to sort of raise awareness about those two books again. Yeah, perfect so thank timing. You. Perfect timing. And not only that, but uh, you seem to recall a lot from this book from 15 years ago. It, it sounds mm -hmm. like the way you were recalling certain events is if you had just written it. Well, I mean, writing that book, it was like a – it was almost like living through uh, some of those events. I mean, I, at that time, I was – very much in that headspace. And uh, I don't know, the, the book just really made kind of an intense impression to the point where I think back on it now, and I can still see moments from that book very clearly in my imagination, like the moment from Beverly Crusher's point of view in the hospital, when she sees a young Teswin child who she's you know gone to a lot of trouble to get space on the, uh, the transport that's leaving. And then the kid turns out to be the one who lobs a grenade into the runabout and kills a you know kills two dozen people and destroys the platform, which plummets into the street and crushes some more people. And it's just this brutal moment, you know, where she's trying to be a good Samaritan, and children are being used as weapons. And uh, so it's like it's a moment like that uh, that when you write it, it has so much power that it just burns into your imagination and just stays with you. Yeah, the infamous, as I call it, chapter 25 of this novel. I, I literally, like after that, I did have to put it down for a few minutes because that was such a just gut punch. Was that the and, one where all the runabouts start going down? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then, of course, uh, McEwen and uh, the other uh, Starfleet troop uh, who are stuck in the downed runabout holding their ground. Yeah, and then um, they, Lieutenant Fillion. Fillion and McEwen, and the, and the two of them basically get shot to pieces and don't make it out. It's brutal. It's a brutal sequence of trying to hold your ground. And then 
realizing you're not going to make it. And the last thing you do is pull the pin on a grenade. Oh yeah. No. And, and, and when I say that, I mean that in the, in the best way possible, I just had to put it down and do something else for a few minutes because yeah, it was brutal, but, uh, it really drove, drove the novel home and, and made it resonate for sure. Well, that was the, that was the goal. I'm hoping that maybe other readers will continue to discover it in, in the years to come. Well, let's hope so. And, and like you said, it's a total coincidence. We had these on our schedule, uh, to do because we thought it would be kind of neat to revisit the A Time Two series, and then you know everything with Control happened, and it just all became all the more relevant. So it's it's just serendipity. So that's really the other cool. fun thing to know about these books is that I never had so much trouble getting a novel outline approved by Paramount uh, by licensing as I did with these two books, specifically A Time to Heal. The outline for a time to kill sailed through with almost, you know, no hassle whatsoever. But the level of violence, uh, the, the sort of the, the darker emotional tone, the brutality that was in some of the early drafts, uh, of both the outline and the manuscript, I struggled and went through multiple revisions arguing with Paula Block, uh, at CBS licensing. And part of the issue was that it's sometimes hard to tell from a licensing point of view, when all you've got to judge is the outline and you're dealing with a novelist who you've never read before, who's, you know, maybe I think she's, you know, she'd read some of my SCE manuscripts maybe, or maybe John Van Sitters had read them, but she had never seen me execute a full length novel. And so in here, I come out of nowhere, this kid out of left field with this unbelievably dark, violent, brutal outline. And as a result, I got a lot of pushback after I was done and they saw how I executed that outline and they understood this is how I go from outline to manuscript and this is what I do with it on the page, I got a lot more trust from them after that. After A Time to Heal hit the USA Today list and they had a chance to see how it was received critically and to see the final product, I have to say since then, licensing cuts me tons of slack. It's like now they say, all right, now we know how you think. We understand now. Also, I've gotten better at knowing what's not going to fly. That for those first two books were a learning experience in what's not going to fly with licensing. I've learned that lesson, but they've also learned you can trust Mac. Don't worry awesome. if he takes well, you to so a dark much for place. Joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm really excited for collateral damage. That's really yep, cool. Looking forward to it myself. Wow, that book really took the wind out of my sail <laughs> because it's just like <laughs> there's so many people dying and there's war and it's just so intense that it's like usually after I read a Star Trek book, I'm like, oh, that was great. That was fun. This one was like, wow, that was heavy, you know? Yeah, the last few chapters, uh, they, they're, I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they're hard to read. Like these people have been through the ringer and... So much has happened. And then, of course, the fate of the uh, the president and his couple members of his staff, that whole last third of the novel is really heavy for sure. Yeah, very heavy, but very good. So, yes, I enjoyed it. Well, it's been fun talking about some pretty dark subject matter here today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. Standard orbit. It has no opposable appendages, so I'm not sure how it, like, stole the pump. But that, be that as it may. Without damaging it. 
Yeah, it's per- in perfect condition. Oh, yeah, here it is back. No acid burns on it. Yeah, it's fine. You know? Just like you unscrewed it from the thing, you know, really carefully. And Anyway, because this is a good episode, we're going to let that go. This is a bad episode. We'd be like, this is so stupid. Earl Grey. Did I have a feeling we had we talked about Echo Paca, uh, Papa 607, didn't we? We, ta- oh, we didn't yes, talk we did. about it on a... Well, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording on the role-playing one. Right. Oh, that's right. That's what you were thinking of. Okay. Little secret thing our listeners didn't hear. <laughs> All right, 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 right. Because <laughs> you had like your your camera drone that was showing us the dice rolls that you had, and you called it Echo Papa Six Hundred Seven. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's right. I know you do these things, and you're like, "Did we record that? Did listeners hear that?" <laughs> I was like, "I remember that." I was like, "I don't." Remember. I was like, it, "Was it was it a character?" No, <laughs> no, <Nope, So>. no. <laughs> Literary treks. So this, of course, leads to a whole bunch of weird temporal shenanigans and paradoxes and that sort of thing as they figure out what they have to do to change history so that they don't it doesn't turn out like it does in the alternate future in book two, but at the same time not changing their past history so that they're not destroyed with the rest of the universe and oh my god I've gone cross-eyed <laughs> warp 5 they've determined that they have to get to the guardian of the galaxy guardian of the galaxy <laughs> guardian of forever oh my goodness <laughs> they we can get... work in the guardians of the galaxy into it could work that would just be crazy <laughs> they have to work in the guardian of forever because somehow the guardian of forever is actually was created by the Temporal Cold War people. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to play a part in helping us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can do that by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. 
You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek universe. Just go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks, click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not summoning your own personal cadre of black-uniformed thugs to get rid of your political enemies for you, where can we find you? Well, you can find me being depressed that they didn't get rid of them for me. And you can hear all about that on Twitter, at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we talk about the latest episodes of Discovery. If it's Short Treks, it's the night of, and we go live the next night if it's after a new episode of Discovery. So go to the Trek FM YouTube page, and you can find our videos there live. And then you can also find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you are not captured, tortured, and interrogated, where can people find you? Yeesh. Well, when that's not happening, uh, hopefully I still have access to Twitter and I can tweet about it. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek. And you can also find me on my website at treklet.com where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and just like Bruce in the Babel Conference, looking forward to reading your comments. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one.